0: Today is the day that Citizen Trump's lawyers present their arguments for acquittal. They will and should argue that the Senate has no jurisdiction, even though the Senate rejected that. They should make that argument again because some senators will continue to vote for acquittal on that ground. They will also argue that the First Amendment precludes conviction and they should make that argument even in the face of 144 scholars telling them it would be unethical to do so. You'll hear why those arguments will prevail and Citizen Trump will be acquitted on The Dershow. Lead House Manager Jamie Raskin, my former student and a very, very bright lawyer, made a very clever argument yesterday. He kind of snuck it in to his general closing. And here's what his argument said. He said, look, senators, there was already a resolution of the issue of whether or not the Senate has jurisdiction. Yeah, 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 we know that the Constitution says the president shall be removed upon impeachment and that the other side has argued that since Trump is not the president, he's the former president and can't be removed, the Senate has no jurisdiction to try him. But, Raskin said, The Senate has already rejected that argument by a vote of 56 to 44. Therefore, it is improper for you senators to consider that issue in deciding whether to vote to convict or acquit. And he made an interesting analogy to a criminal case or even a civil case. When you make a motion to dismiss, it could be granted or denied. But if it's denied, on jurisdictional grounds, you then go on and argue the merits. You don't try to re-argue that there is no jurisdiction. Uh, That's for a very obvious reason, because the jurisdictional issue is a legal issue, and you're arguing to a jury. A jury has no right to make kind of jurisdictional, legal, legal issues. But this is the Senate. They are both judge and jury. They are the judges of the law and the judges of the fact. And so, Jamie Raskin is just dead wrong. The senators should consider whether or not the Senate has jurisdiction. And Trump's lawyers should argue that very vigorously. And there is a precedent, the favorite precedent of the House managers, the Belknap case, 1876. What happened in that case was... Belknap's lawyers unsuccessfully argued to the Senate that the Senate had no jurisdiction because Belknap had resigned. On the eve of being impeached, he resigned. And the Senate voted in a relatively close vote that they did have jurisdiction. But Belknap's lawyers continued to argue that they didn't have jurisdiction. And in the end, 23 senators who believed that Belknap was guilty of sin. There was no doubt about the evidence. He had committed impeachable offenses. He had put his finger in the cookie jar. He had gotten kickbacks. He had engaged in bribery, a high crime and misdemeanor. And yet 23 senators voted to acquit, not on the ground that he was innocent, but on the ground that the Senate had no jurisdiction. So, Congressman Raskin, You live by your precedents and you die by your precedents. That precedent cuts against your argument. Trump's lawyers are entitled to and should argue the jurisdictional and constitutional issue, that the Senate has no authority to put a former president, citizen Trump, on trial, that to do so would constitute a bill of attainder. They don't have to make the bill of attainder argument. That may be a little too technical. But they should persist in making the argument that the Senate has no jurisdiction. Look, for former President Trump to win, he just needs one third of the votes plus one, one third of the senator. It doesn't matter how they come to their conclusion. Half of them can say there is jurisdiction, but we don't think his speech violated the First Amendment. Half of them can say we think his speech uh, was not protected by the First Amendment, but there is no jurisdiction. It doesn't matter. As long as he gets the requisite number of votes to prevent a two-thirds supermajority, he wins. And so lawyers, lawyers for Trump, don't listen to Jamie Raskin. He's a clever lawyer. It was a smart argument, but not a correct argument. It was an argument that would be correct if we had a divided judge making rulings on the law and jurors making rulings on the fact. But here we have a mishmash. We have the presiding officer, Senator Leahy, a very nice man. I know him. He's written me very complimentary letters and said nice things about me. Not recently, but uh, when I was still a favorite of the the Democrats because I defended Bill Clinton, but now I'm no longer a favorite of the Democrats because I'm making constitutional arguments on behalf of Donald Trump. But he is both the judge, a juror, a witness, and a victim. And if this were a real jury trial, obviously the presiding judge would be disqualified if he had already said he was going to vote for conviction. That's Alice in Wonderland, justice, verdict first, trial thereafter. So this isn't a real trial. And this is a trial where senators have a right to vote on any basis as long as it's under the constitutional. Senators do not have the right to vote to impeach. If they do not believe he committed an impeachable offense, they take an oath, a special oath to do justice. They take an oath to the Constitution, and the Constitution includes criteria for who can be impeached, treason, bribery, other high crimes and misdemeanors. It also includes what the purpose of an impeachment trial is, namely, the president shall be removed upon impeachment, the president shall be removed upon impeachment and conviction for treason, bribery, or other high crimes and misdemeanors. You cannot violate those provisions of the Constitution. No, Gerald Ford was wrong when he said impeachment is anything a majority of the House says it is. And Congresswoman Waters was wrong when she says there is no law. There is a law. It's called the Constitution. And Congress is not above the law. The Senate is not above the law. And then Hillary Clinton chimes in. I like Hillary. I voted for her. I supported her. I campaigned for her. I regard her as a, a a friend. And she said yesterday that the only reason Trump might get acquitted is because the senators who vote to acquit are his co-conspirators. They're as guilty as he is. That's not a particularly effective argument because when she says the senators are as guilty as he is, the senators hear that as saying, oh, He must be as innocent as we are. The senators obviously think of themselves as innocent. They don't think of themselves as guilty. And so any comparison between the senators and former President Trump is not going to help the case for convicting Trump. It's going to help the case for acquitting Trump. Hillary Clinton's a good lawyer. I don't know why she made that argument. It's not the kind of argument that I surely would have made if I had been a prosecutor. And so I'm recording this show before we heard the speeches made by the defense team for Citizen Trump, former President Trump. I imagine they're going to limit themselves to two arguments. One, there is no jurisdiction. I hope they continue to make that argument. David Schoen made it very effectively. He should make it again. He should not listen to Congressman Raskin on that issue. And second, they're going to argue that, The speech itself and all the speeches that came before it, all the context, were part of a political speech, complaining about the election. The president was wrong about the election, but the Constitution protects the right to be wrong, the right to be mistaken. The Constitution doesn't distinguish between good ideas, bad ideas, good opinions, bad opinions. So they'll argue that the First Amendment covers the speech, and then third, they'll argue that the Senate is bound by the First Amendment— that you can't impeach a former president or anybody based on constitutionally protected speech because the First Amendment says Congress, Congress, that's Congress, that includes the Senate, Congress shall make no law, no law means no action, abridging the freedom of speech. And if the speech was protected under the Brandenburg principle, then an impeachment based on that speech and other speeches that were protected by the First Amendment would be unconstitutional. And so if they stick to that script, I think they'll get the requisite number of votes for acquittal. If they depart from the script, if they fall into the trap laid by the House managers, then I think they're going to be in trouble. The trap laid by the House managers was they spent an enormous amount of time saying the president lied about the election. The election wasn't stolen. The president lied, lied. He lied from the night of the election. He lied from... November 6th to January 20th. Every day he lied. He said, it's stealing. It's not right. It's wrong. If they try to defend the president, they will lose. Because right now, there are senators who will vote for them on the jurisdictional issue and on the First Amendment issues, but they won't vote for them if the trial becomes a referendum on whether the election was fair. I think many Republican senators, perhaps most, believe the election was fair and that it wasn't stolen, and that the president was wrong when he urged his people to reverse the steal uh, and do all the things he said. The president wasn't right about that. And if they tried to defend the president, as the president would like them to do, but good lawyers don't always listen to the instructions of their clients, if they try to make that argument, there's a good chance they will lose enough senators to turn the case around and uh, produce... A victory for the House managers and a defeat for President Trump. I think the lawyers are smart enough not to fall into that trap. I know David Schoen is smart enough not to fall into the trap. And I know even Kasten, who did not distinguish himself, on the first day of argument, maybe he'll be better. This is like the second half. Uh, Mahone had Mahone's had a terrible first half. People thought in the locker room he'd come back and have a great second half. He didn't. He had just as bad a second half as he had a first half. Um, let's see whether or not Castor can regain his, uh, great talent because he's a talented lawyer and make a more effective argument. But I know Sean will make a very effective argument. I know he won't fall into the trap. Castor, even during his initial ineffective argument, did say that they wouldn't be arguing about the election itself and, um, uh, the Democrats, the managers, try to lull them or force them or incite them or induce them into falling into the trap of arguing that the election was stolen. Uh, They shouldn't do that. I don't think they will do that. And so we may see a relatively quick resolution to this trial. I know the Democrats want to finish up within um, uh, three or four or five hours today. One of the lawyers, David Schoen, is an Orthodox Jew, sabbath observant and i think he will want to end his part of the presentation before sabbath which is i don't know around five o'clock uh today uh that's not the reason he's going to keep it short i think the reason to keep it short is the arguments are constitutional they're clear and to the extent that they can be kept pristine and not get into the uh irrelevant facts and You know, it's hard to say irrelevant, but really it is irrelevant what happened at the Capitol. It's relevant to all of our lives. It was relevant to the senators. It was relevant in assessing um, what these thugs did when they violently protested. But unless you can prove a direct relationship between the president inciting, which he didn't do, and the uh, actions in in the House, the actions of the House are irrelevant, probably a judge in an ordinary criminal case— would keep that out, certainly wouldn't let the prosecution begin with it. They would have to first establish a foundation and prove the connection between the defendant and the events in the Capitol. And so the events in the Capitol um, um, are very prejudicial, and everybody, you can't stop thinking about that. Nikki Haley talked about today how she couldn't even watch television. It's very hard to watch those those events, but remember, too, that the president said Um, I urge you to march with me to the Capitol peacefully and patriotically so that your voices could be heard. Those are not words of incitement. Those are words of advocacy. Those are words that are protected by the Constitution. Even false statements are protected by the Constitution. As I said before, the Constitution doesn't distinguish between flat earthers and scientists. Uh, You can say the earth is flat. You can say the earth is round. The Constitution protects both. You can ridiculously, absurdly, maliciously, and anti-Semitically say the Holocaust didn't occur, or you can produce documentary evidence from the Nazis themselves admitting they killed six million Jews. Each has equal status under the First Amendment. You can be a Nazi marching through Skokie uh, confronting Holocaust survivors, or you can be Martin Luther King, the great Martin Luther King, walking through Birmingham. The First Amendment doesn't distinguish between good speech and bad speech, and it's very important. For the uh, lawyers to make that point and essentially concede without maybe saying the words, essentially concede that the president's speech was not his finest hour, it was not admirable, it was not something that they support on the merits. That's certainly my view, but that it's constitutionally protected. So by the time you watch this podcast, um, probably the arguments will have been made, maybe even completed. And I think fairly soon thereafter, there will be several votes. One, whether to hear witnesses, and I suspect that vote will say no. Both sides seem to be inclined toward making this trial sooner rather than later come to an end. And then there'll be a vote. And clearly there'll be a majority, as there has been in numerous impeachment cases, uh, for conviction. In the Andrew Johnson case, there was a majority uh, in the first Trump case, at least on one charge, um, there was a, a majority. And in this case, there will be a majority. But uh, I think in the Clinton case, it was, if I remember correctly, 50-50, not a majority. And a tie would have been broken by a vice president, by Al Gore, but you need a two-thirds, So 50-50 was not enough. There'll be a majority here, at least um, 50, probably 56, probably the six Republicans who voted for jurisdiction will also vote for conviction. Cassidy certainly seems leaning in that direction, although he says he has an open mind. Uh, and maybe a couple of others will come along. It could very well be that they were convinced by the uh, quite effective presentation of the videos, as I said before in this show. Oscar, Emmy, uh, you name it. Uh, the people who produce those videos deserve all the praise in the world. And I think the lawyers— for the House managers, generally did a good job on day one. On day two, they did not do a good job. They were too repetitive. Um, They filibustered. The arguments on the constitutional issue were not effective, not persuasive, uh, not compelling. But the video presentations were very, very effective, and they could sway some Republicans who were in the Senate, who are victims, who are jurors, who are witnesses, So it's possible they'll get more votes. It's even possible they'll get enough votes. We don't know. The senators haven't spoken out. So this is not yet a foregone conclusion, but it seems likely, based on statements made by several of the Republican senators, that although they claim to have an open mind, their inclination, at least, is toward not voting for conviction. We'll know that soon. And um, if, if Trump is again acquitted, he will claim vindication, This will have been an utter waste of time and resources and will have further divided the country. It was a serious mistake to impeach the president the first time, a serious mistake to impeach him the second time. We're seeing the weaponization of impeachment. This will only lead to more impeachments, more impeachments by Republican-controlled houses of Democrats. We're going down a dangerous road and we're trivializing impeachment, we're making Hamilton's nightmare come true. Hamilton said in Federalist 65, the worst danger, the greatest danger, is if impeachment becomes a partisan issue where it turns on the number of votes rather than on the constitutional criteria being satisfied by evidence of guilt. I know many of you have strong opinions on this on both sides. And let me tell you, I get emails every day from close friends, uh, one this morning. You've sold out. How could you say that uh, the president invited rather than incited? Well, look at his own words. I urge you to march peacefully and patriotically to have your voices heard. That sounds like an invitation, not an incitement. And as I've said before... An invitation you could accept or reject. Many of the people, perhaps most of the people who were at the president's speech rejected his invitation. They went home and watched television. Some went. Some of those who went broke in. Some of those who broke in committed violence. That's not the way incitement works. If somebody shouts fire in a crowded theater, a bad analogy, but if somebody shouts fire in a crowded theater, everybody leaves. You don't get up and debate. Well, maybe we should stay. We are really martyrs and we're prepared to be sacrificed to the fire let's debate this and discuss this no shouting fire is incitement it is directed to the legs and the adrenaline not the mind not the brain not the thinking process and that didn't happen here so let's hear your views let's hear your your opinions I know you have strong opinions you will always have an opportunity to express them we do not agree on this show with 144 scholars who said any First Amendment defense raised by President Trump's attorneys would be legally frivolous. No, it would be frivolous not to make those arguments. I hope they will be made today. And we disagree with 144 scholars who said no reasonable scholar or jurist would offer that argument. I'm a reasonable scholar and jurist. I offer that argument. I believe it's true and correct. I know some of you agree with me. Some of you disagree with me. Let's hear your views on The Dirt Show. Let's turn to our first call for the day.
1: Yeah, hi, this is Aaron from Ohio. And I I just had a simple question about why the framers set up the constitution this way, that impeachment takes place in the House and the Senate and not in the court of law. Why would they want the decision about whether a president should be impeached to be biased by partisan beliefs? We all know the House and the Senate are the most partisan-driven institutions in the country. Can you imagine what would have happened had had a Democratic senator voted that this process was unconstitutional? The mainstream media would have destroyed them. I mean, maybe they would be wrong for doing that, but we all know what would have happened. Imagine if a Democrat senator votes not to impeach Trump. The Democrat Party, the mainstream media will go crazy, okay? And if you listen to the media and you read the news right now, the conversation is, will 17 Republican senators vote to impeach Trump? not, will 67 senators vote to impeach because anyone thinking logically knows that there's tremendous partisanship pressure, partisan pressure involved in this and that all Democrats are going to fall in line and vote to impeach. So why would the framers of the Constitution want this set up and not one with certain less partisanship bias? Thank you and I look forward to hearing your answer.
0: It's a great question and the framers thought about putting the issue of removing a president in the Supreme Court. That was debated at the Constitutional Convention. And the argument was offered that it would not be proper to have it done in front of judges because the president, once he's removed, can be tried. And that would mean that there'd be a presumption of guilt in front of the same judges. So they thought the Senate would be the appropriate place. And remember, the Senate was not a partisan institution at the time of the framing. Senators were not elected. They were appointed by the state legislatures. And they were appointed as distinguished, eminent elder statesmen, it was supposed to be less partisanship among senators than among members of the House. Obviously, that hasn't proved to be the case at all. But the framers seriously considered putting the trial of an impeached president in front of the Supreme Court of the United States, and ultimately they rejected it. It might have been a better idea, and the compromise was to put the chief justice in charge of presiding over the trial of an impeached president.
2: Hello, Alan. This is Tom in Santa Monica. Uh, Your show is terrific. I have a question about the opinion of the legal scholars. These legal scholars are going to become judges one day, and their students are going to become judges. How do we deal with them as judges? It sounds like we are a nation of men, not laws, uh, if these people are in charge. I'd appreciate your comment.
0: It's a very fair question, particularly when they say no reasonable scholar or jurist can make the First Amendment argument. Are they saying that they would gray down a student who made that argument in class? Would they not promote an assistant professor who believed in that argument? Would it mean that I wouldn't have gotten tenure? If I were up for tenure today because they would say I'm not a reasonable scholar or jurist because I strongly support that argument, it really shows the incredible bias of the American Academy today, including law schools. I'm deeply disappointed because I know some of the signatories on that letter, and some of them are very reasonable and decent people, but they've gotten so caught up in the anti-Trump sentiment that they're prepared to compromise constitutional principles that they've long held sacred in order to get Trump. And I I agree with you. Uh, I would have problem confirming as a judge um, any um, professor who signed that letter because the letter is a letter of intimidation. It's a threat. It says, if you make a First Amendment argument, you will be engaged in unethical conduct and you will be an unreasonable scholar and don't deserve to be promoted. That's not the kind of dialogue that should be encouraged in american academic institutions
1: this is mike i'm calling from new orleans professor i've heard you say multiple times that speeches given on the uh, house and senate floor are completely protected you can just about say anything and everything you want to there's no recourse for any individuals or anything along those lines are speeches or statements made that were not made inside the Capitol? so they you know made in another venue perhaps or anything along those lines still in that capacity Uh, of their uh, roles they were elected for just as protected. And a simple example, uh, AOC was making the accusation that Ted Cruz was trying to have her killed, which is an actual criminal, uh, very very heavy criminal accusation. Is there a recourse for that type of uh, speech for someone uh, on on any side of the aisle? Thank you.
0: What a great question. I get all the best questions. I mean, you guys are really... Terrific students and participants in my seminar. And the answer is it's not as protected, but there are cases saying that if it's part and parcel of what you're saying as a senator on the way to the Senate, on the way back, on the way to Congress, on the way back, there is a level of protection, but it's not as great or as considerable. And there's a lot of litigation around the edges of that issue. Uh, The core protection is what happens In the Senate, in the House, or on the way to and from the Senate, in the House, or in preparation for your role as senator or congressperson. But the edges are not clear if you say it on mass media, if you tweet it. Um, You certainly get less protection. Whether you get any protection at all is a subject of some controversy today. Uh,
2: This is Melinda from Oklahoma. I just want to say I appreciate you putting on the show. And after watching your last show about wishing that you were there to let them know that it's not legally frivolous to um, discuss the First Amendment, I really, really wish you would, (laughs) if there was any way to have a guest appearance on the impeachment trial, the impeachment show that's happening, um, if you could get on there and just... I mean, that in and of itself, the letter is, a, you know, telling lawyers not to defend under the First Amendment. And it's also a violation of the First Amendment, <laughs> in my opinion. So it really underscores the problem that this impeachment trial is showing. So I appreciate Thank you. Have a good day. Goodbye.
0: I agree with your comment. I think the letter is an infringement on the First Amendment. I think it's an infringement on the Sixth and Seventh Amendment. It, it uh, undercuts zealous advocacy in the adversary system and freedom of expression. All of that is completely correct, and I do have mixed feelings. Uh, part of me wishes I was there making uh, the argument, because with all due modesty, I think I could make it uh, at least as effectively as the lawyers who are now representing uh President, former President Trump, but I'm not there. I chose not to be uh, one of the lawyers, and I have to uh, uh, live by that decision. Um, I'm, I'm hoping that the uh, presentation of the Trump lawyers will be as effective as the presentation of the House managers. The American public uh, are entitled to have an adversarial system in which both sides are presented effectively. And so thanks for your great question.
1: Professor Dershowitz, it's a, it's an honor to be able to ask you a question, but this one comes out about the executive orders. Uh, is there any end to the power of the executive order? We have a president now who's been, come up with about 60 of them uh, completely circumventing the other branches of government, uh, creating law uh, as a tyrant
0: or a king. Uh, Is there any limit to the power of these uh, and how many they can do? And he's up to about 60. Is there any limit for him to have 600 or
2: 6,000? Thank you.
0: Again, another great, great question. The framers of the Constitution intended rules to be created by the legislature, by the House and by the Senate. The Constitution specifically provides that uh, bills relating to spending must originate in the House, the Senate has its role. The president has its, his role in vetoing or not vetoing legislation. I think executive uh, orders have gone much too far on all sides. Uh, president Trump issued executive orders. I know I helped draft one of them uh, on the issue of anti-Semitism on university campuses. Presidents have a lot of authority under the Constitution to make foreign policy, to be the commander in chief of the military He's not our commander in chief. He's the military's commander in chief. But many of these executive orders really do take the place of legislation, and I think there should be limits. The courts have not really imposed many limits, and they should be self-imposed. But of course, you know, presidents want to have as much power as possible. When Jefferson ran for president, he ran on the theory of a limited presidency, and then of course he he bought Louisiana without any approval by. Uh, the House or the Senate. So it began early in our history when presidents assumed powers that weren't necessarily granted to them in Article II of the Constitution. But uh, uh, we're going to see an interplay between the legislative, the executive, and the judicial branches. That's our system of checks and balances. What great questions. I mean, these are the kinds of questions that uh, I always hoped for as a, a professor for 50 years. Thoughtful, intelligent questions, not the kind of emails I get every day, some from former friends, some even from relatives, accusing me of everything under the sun for defending the Constitution. They love when I defend the Constitution on their side, but they hate, they call me a sellout when I defend the Constitution against their own uh, particular partisan uh, points of view. I hope after this impeachment, Trial is over. We can move back and, in the spirit of Abraham Lincoln, with malice toward none and charity for all, move forward, unite the country. We are the strongest and best country in the world. When we're united and when we're divided, uh, we are weaker and weaker and weaker. We will always aim for unity on this show. Yes, every opinion gets expressed, every point of view gets taken seriously. But in the end, we love our country. We love America. We love the Constitution. We love our system of separation of powers and checks and balances. And you'll always hear why. And you'll always hear the case for bringing us together on The Dirt Show. So come back and listen. Next week, we'll talk a lot more about what happened at the impeachment trial. And then we'll move on. There are other important issues that I know you want to talk about. And I certainly want to talk about. So stay tuned, come back and subscribe and listen to The Durst Show. An important part of The Durst Show is your voice, your questions, your comments. Please call 24-7. The number is 216-710-0050. Keep your comments short and to the point. Again, the number for you to call 24-7 is 216 216- Hard questions, criticisms, everything's fine. Just keep your questions short and I'll answer them all on The Dirt Show.